You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. I see trees of green, red roses too, I see them blue for me and you. And that music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter on a beautiful Davis day. I'm not really going for the bright these days. <laughs> it, it, it got a little cloudy there, and and it's going to be in the 40s at night. Oh, Don. We have had a very rapid change in the weather. We were something like 90 degrees a week ago. And then uh, tomorrow morning, the morning after, I should say, the broadcast, it will be 39 degrees. So we are rapidly progressing from late summer to early winter. That's what we call fall here. It's actually been quite beautiful, sunny and clear. And then a couple of days ago, we had rain. And the weather service had been forecasting a tenth to maybe a quarter inch of rain around the area. And Depends the storm came on where in. you are. We well, got a really, whole lot more than a quarter of an inch. Some did. Now, there's a lot of weather stations that didn't record all that much. But the Davis University Airport, which is the official uh, weather station that I go by, which is on the west side of um, campus, was a half inch of rain. They were expecting a tenth to a quarter inch. There were places around Sacramento that got an inch. Arden Creek got an inch and a half. But Sacramento State, 20 miles away, got 0.18 inch. So it was a bit up and down but there were places particularly on the east side of sacramento that got in excess of an inch of rain it was a pleasant storm it saturated the soil pretty well i'm guessing this will bring up a nice whole crop of weeds <laughs> all those winter weeds will get exactly what they needed to germinate and uh, so with the wildfire seeds you could have thrown out right before that storm but good news you can still go out and we do have a little chance of showers coming in and the soil is moist and the temperatures are cooler throw out some california poppy seeds or some wildflowers or throw some grass seed on your lawn this is the perfect time to do that we talk about it so, all year long this is the perfect time to go out in the Sacramento Valley and scatter California poppy seeds other wildflower seeds some other types of flower seeds and especially grass in your lawn or your meadow areas or whatever you want to get recharged with some new grass species you said that that rainstorm a couple days ago made it so that the weeds are going to come up. Yep. Should I go with a hula hole and ruffle up the soil to, to kill those weeds before I plant my, my seeds? Yes. Especially if you're doing California poppy seeds, because the, the, the rapid growth of the winter weeds will crowd out things like the California poppies. So I would wait personally, I'd wait until the weeds come up to see what you're doing, but it, yes, cutting through there and breaking up that germination process. We're about to see a nice carpet of grasses and other weeds. The, the things that are, you know, wild in this area, if you will, adventive non-native species will be coming up. And uh, there, remember, Almost all weeds are easiest to control in the two to six leaf seedling stage. Doesn't even really matter what they are. A hula hoe, as you call it, an action hoe, a regular hoe, smothering them with something. Wait till they've just germinated them, bury them in mulch. Use a tarp if you want to. If you're going to be planting bare root fruit trees in an area, wait till some of those things come up. Cover that area with a tarp until January when you're going to be planting. Any of a number of things you can do. But our first crop of weeds is about to come up. Welcome back to this topic. Uh, main thing being, we got a pretty good amount of rainfall and the temperatures 
are dropping rapidly. Here's what we're looking at for the coming week. This today is October 25th. As Lois and I are preparing the broadcast, it will air on the 26th. A day will be sunny and 67 degrees. Thursday night, we're going to finally drop below 40 degrees for the first time. We'll be 39 degrees and partly cloudy Thursday night. Friday, mostly sunny, 64. Very sounds like it'll be very pretty. Friday night, also 39 degrees. Saturday, 66 and sunny. Saturday night, 44 degrees. Sunday, 67 and sunny. Sunday night, back to 39 degrees. Monday, mostly sunny, 67. Monday night again, 39 degrees. And Tuesday, 68 and sunny. So for those of you planning for Halloween, trick-or-treating, Tuesday will be sunny. There's not, not particularly any, doesn't look like any rain in the forecast for that particular day. I know many times as a parent of young children, it seemed like it always rained early in the evening on Halloween. Maybe that's just my selective memory. But So the long, the extended discussion here is that drier weather will build in the area Sunday into Tuesday. There's a little chance of showers uh, during this week, some chance even on Friday, Friday night into early Saturday. Light showers, once again, kind of like what we just had. Otherwise, dry weather is expected Thursday into the weekend. Much cooler temperatures the remainder of this week with highs down around 10 to 15 degrees compared to earlier this week. Overnight lows will finally become chilly with the coldest portions of the valley expected dip into the upper 30s teens and 20s will be possible in the colder mountain locations for a sunday through wednesday dry weather is expected as a high pressure ridge will build that means we're probably going to have areas of gusty north wind sunday into early monday if you've just seeded something and we get a north wind water two to three times that day it's very important that young seedlings not dry out as they're in the process of germinating and those gusty winds will continue into early monday and then uh, looks like another pacific frontal system may be out there the models are unclear on that but it could be more rain coming in after that so rapid rapid change in the weather here and some important temperatures so don it sounds as though if you haven't gotten your uh how should I say, your migratory plants, those things that come inside for the winter? Yes. If you haven't got them inside, you best scurry out there and bring those poor things in, or at least up next to the house. Yeah, start thinking. Oh. Yeah, and we will go rapidly from, you know, uh, upper 30s at the end of October to our first frost, typically right around Thanksgiving, which is only, you know, four weeks away. So or five weeks away from now, four, uh, four weeks into November, that's when you start to get injury. But tropical plants, outdoor plants that are the plants that you've put outdoors for the summer that really are indoor plants, such as your philodendrons, your pothos, uh, uh, even your ficus, things like that that are normally considered house plants. 40 degrees is going to start doing some injury to them. No, you're not going to see visible significant injury. But when they when tropical plants go below their preferred temperatures, they start to shed roots and leaves and things like that. So the first thing I would do is if you possibly can, if you have time for this, bring them up closer to the house to a warm spot under the overhang, something like that, wash them off really vigorously, flush the soil really thoroughly, Make sure there's no ants' nests in there. Make sure there's no aphids or things on the plants themselves. So a vigorous rinse is a good plan before it comes in. If there are ants in the soil, I've gone through this many times with plants on my front porch or front deck, and bringing them in, you know, there's an ants' nest in there. Ants love nursery soil. I hate to say that, but they think it's one of the easiest things they can build their complex homes in. And so they move into pots and barrels very, very readily. What I do is really simple. I'll just fill a larger bucket or tub with water and completely submerge the plant, plant and all, roots, soil, pot, plant and all in that water for several hours. 
and the ant's nest will rapidly vacate. All the ants will scurry, float to the top, try to get away. You can do whatever you want at that point, depending on your mood. Main point being, once they've emerged and once the queen has emerged, you've gotten rid of the ant's nest, and you don't have that unpleasant experience of bringing a houseplant inside and finding you've also brought in an ant's nest. So check them for pests and such before you bring them in. We're not close to a frost yet. We're several, probably three to four weeks away from our first frost, but it tends to happen rather rapidly when it does. And to watch the weather for the likelihood of the kind of frost that will injure tropical plants or even some subtropical plants, it's that storm comes in, north wind clears out the storm, pulls in cold air behind it that's when we get to a frost that can do some injury. It's looking like up in Oregon and Washington, they're going to get their first major snowstorm of the winter. And uh, right now in Baja, California, a tropical storm turned into a Category 5 hurricane in 12 hours. So things are turbulent out there. There's a lot going on with the ocean temperatures. On my experience of living here for several decades now, this is a classic El Nino pattern. The storm comes in, they think it's going to be a tenth of an inch, it's a half an inch. Uh, they have a storm coming in, they don't know how much rain it's going to get, it does rain. And so that's the, the typical El Nino pattern that I've observed over the years I've been here in Northern California. What you're going to get in Southern California, Pacific Northwest, stay tuned. Lots of El Nino updates coming out from all of our weather, weather folks over on different sources of social media. Okay, KDRT is community radio. We rely on contributions from listeners like you to fund our operating costs. If you like what you hear here at the Davis Garden Show or That's Life or Jazz After Dark or all the other great programming here at KDRT, well then head on over to kdrt.org and click on the support button. Do you want to mention a Tree Davis event coming up that I'll be at the third annual Legacy Celebration? Uh, you join us at the Memorial Grove, just south of the University Retirement Center, for our third annual Legacy Celebration. We'll be gathering to celebrate the accomplishments of community members that make Davis and Yolo County a great place to live. We'll honor our newest group of Tree Davis Stewardship Award winners, very cool recipients in that group. We'll have tours of the Memorial Grove. Light refreshments will be served. It'll be a fun and lively event for all that attend. As part of the planning committee on this, we kept discussing what if it rains? And we finally came to this conclusion. We're plant people. We're tree people. If it <laughs> rains, big deal. Bring an umbrella, okay? We will have a canopy you can stand under, but our experience, the first one of these, it did rain and it was cold and there were 40 or 50 people there and it was fine. So we will have dry places. So even if it's raining, come on over and we, there's a really cool garden there. If you don't want to come to a particular event, you can walk through the Tree Davis Memorial Grove, just south of the University Retirement Center on Shasta Drive. You can't park on Shasta. You need to park around in the residential subdivision on the west side. And we've been planting California native plants and low water plants around these memorial trees where people have given a bequest in order to have a tree planted. It is spectacular right now. There's a bed of California fuchsia 30 feet long in full bloom. We've got bladder pods, which is a California native shrub in full bloom. The grasses are looking great. It's a great place to go to get ideas. There are native and non-native low water plants around the trees. So we're turning this into an idea landscape, a place you can go and see, oh, look, you know, I can plant a great big shade tree and while it's growing, I can have all these flowers that draw pollinators and want the same kind of watering as these trees and so forth. So great opportunity there to to get some ideas, but come on out to the third annual Legacy Celebration. Head over to treedavis.org, click on the event calendar. It would be great if you would let us know you're coming so we buy enough cookies and coffee. So I'd like to talk about white-crowned sparrows. <laughs> <laughs> They're one of my favorite birds. Are they really? <laughs> one, of, one of Don's um, 
biggest pests, according to Don. Yes. He sent, and and this is an, a paragraph from Wikipedia describing white-crowned sparrows. I think it's nice and objective. I like the neutral yes. tone of voice. Okay, so These birds is- forage on the ground or in low vegetation, but sometimes make short flights to catch flying insects. They mainly eat seeds, other plant parts, and insects. In winter, they often forage in flocks. Yes, indeed. So, we can we can attest to that last one. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about um, what birds do at different times of yeah, year. Yeah, well, let's back in up back, back back up a minute here. What we've uh-huh. had is a lot of people coming in right now and saying, "I planted all this stuff last week, and I went out, and it's completely gone. What happened? Is it snails?" And uh, you know, I generally think no, it probably isn't snails because if it was snails, parts of the plant would still be left. But it's one of two things. It's either tree rats or possibly squirrels, but more commonly tree rats or white crowned sparrows. And indeed, the plants are completely gone. That's the big difference. Or you just find little tattered bits of them around. You don't find um, part of a leaf remaining. You don't find part of the plant. Usually you find the whole thing completely gone. So we talk about exclusion. We talk about what to do. But let's talk more about what we're dealing with here. They are, by the way, they're very cute birds. I enjoy looking out my window and seeing little flocks of birds hopping through my garden. I'm not fond of what this particular one does when it's out there, but I'm told they eat insects. So on the plus side, they do that. Go ahead. First of all, white crowned sparrows, golden crowned sparrows, and juncos move down into the valley for the winter. They come to Davis to hang out during the wintertime because it's too cold and snowy up where their homes are. In the spring, and they go back up to the foothills and that's where they are and they're where they have their families. They raise their young and all that stuff. But for the wintertime, they come on vacation in my backyard, in your mm-hmm. backyard. Mm-hmm. So the difference is that in the winter, they congregate in little groups. Now, a flock is usually somewhere between 12 and 24. It's rare to see giant flocks. Thank goodness. (laughs) And it's rare to have them solitary like you would with, oh, the hermit thrush. But in this. Hence the name, right? Pardon? Hence the name. Hermit. Hence the hermit thrush. Yeah. Um, So. When you see one, there's more. And there's bushes. And that's where they hang out. And then they come out from the bushes to whatever they can comfortably get to without feeling too scared because they don't like to get that far from bushes. Uh, white crowned sparrow is very seasonal for us and very problematic. And re- with respect to both white crowned sparrows and tree rats, it's frustrating because of the amount of damage they can do in a single night. But uh, in other words, take out all the seedlings you just planted the day before. But physical barriers are the answer that we give over and over. I, obviously, there's no trapping or spraying or anything that we want you to do for birds or rats, for that matter, because it wouldn't put a dent in the population anyway. Even if you wanted to kill them, it wouldn't work. So it wouldn't make any difference. So don't don't go that route. Uh, you put up physical barriers. And once you've purchased the supplies for this, it's a one-time thing, and you figured out how to make a simple enclosure over your garden bed. It can be as simple as a hand-molded wire cage that you just set over it, or it can be something that's a attached to your raised planters, which are particularly ideal for building structures like this, you've got the problem solved. We do not recommend bird netting, despite the name of the product, because they get tangled in it. It's horrible. And everyone who's used it has the same experience. You have to go out and you find yourself apologizing and freeing these little birds. They're tangled in there making horrible noises. 
So and it doesn't really work anyway. And in terms of keeping tree rats out, they'll go under whatever you put on. So they'll happily go under it if there's a safe dark side to do that from. So you need to secure it reasonably well. It just becomes a process of building or molding, hand molding if necessary, by which I mean getting some kind of fairly heavy gauge poultry wire, but this like a half inch size hole and shaping it and just setting it over the bed until the plants are up to a certain size. Experience will tell you after a while how big that is. I can tell you up to six inches for peas, that's a buffet. <laughs> 12 inches and up, they'll typically leave them alone. So you'll find out when you can finally take that thing off for the rest of the season. But uh, getting a simple structure that you can put over the seedling bed, whether it's a few seedlings at a time with a little cover or covering the whole bed with something, that's really going to be your only answer on these two particular pest problems. If you're not sure which it is, and you think it's still, still think it might be snails or slugs, because the lady was saying, do I put beer out for the birds? And we had a good laugh over whether the birds would enjoy the beer. The beer is for snails and slugs. It's probably not them, but it might be. So go out at night with a flashlight. You can put beer out if you want, folks. That's fine. I'm sure many of the animals will enjoy it. And just for the record, alcohol is not relevant. It's the smell of the yeast and they fall in and drown. Not the birds, the snails and slugs. I have no idea if birds like beer. So, but physical barriers for rodent or what we we call vertebrate pests and then there are various baits you can use if it happens to actually be snails and slugs real quickly the other big pest problem we're getting many questions about is white flies because they just exploded with that late what we call you know indian summer effect we've been having here temperatures were perfect for their reproduction good news Temperatures below 55, they basically stop reproducing, and below 50, almost completely. 39 degrees isn't going to kill them, but they'll slow down so much that the beneficial insects will give very good control, and your, your white fly problem and a lot of your aphid problems will simply disappear because the temperatures are out of their reproductive range. So our next topic is an article that I sent over to you. And it says, thanks to their resistance to low temperatures, these plants will keep your home lively and colorful throughout the whole year. And it's written, it's from, uh, well, I won't say where it's from, but I it's, uh, <laughs> go ahead, Don. Architectural Digest. Okay, so yeah. this is one of the premier publications uh, serving the public in terms of ideas for your house and design and all this kind of thing. And it this got posted on a nursery Facebook group, but it go ahead and read the seven plants that are supposedly going to bloom all year and keep your home lively and colorful. It it from reading it, usually it sounds like these are plants that you're going to put inside your house and grow. Although sometimes they talk about the temperature outside. And it's so it's very confusing. And they list plants. If these are supposed to be indoor plants, they got a big problem because they're listing begonia and lavender and African violet and verbena and lavender. You'd never grow lavender inside. I mean, I'm stretching it when I grow butylon inside, and that's really <laughs> stretching it. Although but I would not. I wouldn't be so no. concerned about an article that mentioned Ibutalon. These are the kinds of things that come into our nurseries, people. It's the same thing that got on got around on the internet a while ago about plants that repel mosquitoes and that you, somehow you're going to plant these, they're going to repel mosquitoes. No, that's just nonsense. But this particular one of the seven, begonia, lavender, African violet, oh, what are the other ones? You just went through them. African violets are a houseplant and they do potentially bloom all year. They don't bloom all the time all year. They bloom kind of in cycles of bloom. But yeah, that's an indoor plant. You can grow begonias indoors and i do want to mention this one because if your begonias are outside and you're growing the fancy leaf begonias which a lot of us collect i've got quite a number of them they're frost tender some of them are hardier than others i have experimented with leaving them out under an overhang and many of them will come through but another thing i've noticed is the cane type begonias 
Uh, I can't think of any names off the top of my head, but these Angel. are tall. Angel, Angel Wing is a good example. Tall growers grown mainly for the foliage. If you bring them inside, they'll frequently go into bloom. So they do flower indoors. I don't promise it year round, but you're, you know, you're mainly bringing them indoors in order to save them from freezing weather. And you might get a nice bloom out of them. So that one's not quite such a stretch. And a lot of begonias are grown just for the attractive foliage. Lavender? No. Lavender is a full sun loving Mediterranean plant that prefers to be outside in the garden and will bloom in our area from about April through July, depending on the variety. There are earlier and later types. If they mean you can pick them for a long time and bring the blooms inside, I would stretch that to March and maybe August in the case of some varieties well chosen. Certainly it's not an indoor plant, but what frustrates me about this is I do see it being sold in the indoor plant sections grocery stores right next to the basil and the splitly philodendron as if these are all interchangeable so this is part of where this confusion probably comes from verbena not a chance it's an outdoor sun loving summer plant geraniums why would you bring them indoors i can't imagine that <laughs> but uh, they are a great container plant sure but and they do bloom a lot but not indoors interesting one is pentas I was surprised to see that on here. Um, it's a subtropical, or actually, I think truly tropical plant that is being used as sort of an alternative to impatience. You could get it to bloom for a while indoors, I suppose. So it's one of those that would be like a, a flower arrangement that lasts for a long time. If you look at it that way, you'll be you'll be perfectly happy with it. And then purslane, well, that's a name for members of the family uh, that includes portulaca, if that helps, or moss rose, summer, sun-loving, heat-loving annual. None of them are going to grow indoors and none of them are going to be particularly happy any time outside of about May through September. What bothers me about this, aside from the fact that this is a well-known publication, this was an editor didn't fact check this at all. They didn't, they, no one ever consulted with any kind of plant professional, not even her great aunt Minnie who grows flowers. I mean, they just pulled this stuff off the internet or somewhere, who knows where. And this will probably, by the time I saw this, it had already been shared multiple times. So I very politely just put a comment since they had it on their Facebook page. This article is highly inaccurate and a few people thanked me for that. But other than that, this is going to go around and people are going to think these are indoor plants. And it, it frustrates, particularly frustrates professional garden writers when they see this kind of thing. I'm a non-professional garden writer. I write garden columns and they're published. And I'm not directly paid for most of them, but I do it as part of my business. But I do have a very strong sympathy for those who try to make their living as garden writers when they see something like this, thinking this person probably got paid for this. And it is really not factual at all. It's not got any validity. So it's out there, it'll go around. There's no plant actually that will bloom year-round indoors but the closest one and i know this is dear to lois's heart is african violet members of that group of plants gisneriads such as african violets gloxinias episcias some of the others can bloom indoors almost any time to get them to bloom through the winter you probably need to supplement their light and they look particularly good if you that do that so if you happen to have a grow light and you happen to have some african violets that can be a nice way to cheer up a room in the winter months the other six mm, nah skip them Okay, to sum up, read, take uh, articles you read on the internet with a handful of salt. How's that? <laughs> Not just a grain of salt. And it's frustrating because it's such a great medium for people to get information, but the information has no filter. <clears throat> when it's a medical information, I can go to um, a, a hospital or, you know, the Mayo Clinic yeah. or whatever, and I can, I can check it out. 
where does one look to make sure that the information they're getting is good? I would have assumed a, a big published magazine like Architectural Dialist, they'd probably have good stuff. But I don't know. I know the Washington Post articles are usually pretty good, although some of them are specific to a, a region and they don't necessarily say that. That's one of the biggest things is that the information may be correct for where the person who wrote it is living. But wasn't there a tree that you came across, Don, that has nothing to do with California? Well, the newspapers, of course, are you know have a lot of uh, staffing issues because their their business model is struggling. But uh, so many of them, when they have a do-it-yourself section or a home improvement guide or something like that, will just pull wire service articles about gardening since that's part of home improvement or do-it-yourself, and they'll just put them in there. And one of our local papers did that with an article about a tree, a flowering tree. Sounds interesting. I I've literally never seen it anywhere in California. I had to look it up to remember what it was. Uh, and someone, I did it because someone came and asked me about it. I said, hey, can you get this tree? And I said, I don't even think this tree grows here. And so I looked where the wire service was, AP wire service, and I'm reading about this tree. This is a tree that's popular. I'm not going to mention it, so you don't rush out, try and find it. In the southeastern United States, Florida, Georgia, places like that. Um, I don't think it's going to grow in California particularly well, and I don't want people going on a wild goose chase looking for it. But it's the, the problem when you pull something off a wire service and put it in your local newspaper, you've taken something that may or may not be appropriate. Generally speaking, newspapers that use local, I mean, I'll throw in a plug for myself here, that use local writers. The Davis Enterprise publishes my columns. They also are publishing a monthly column by the Master Gardeners of Yellow County, which is focusing on uh, pest problems that they've had inquiries about. That's what you look for is locally produced material that is clearly written by Yolo County Master Gardeners. Okay, that's going to be local. Uh, something by me and there, you know, there are newspapers that, well, Sacramento Bee used to have local columnists who, who wrote about at least regionally appropriate gardening topics. As uh, various of us who do radio will say, and Fred Hoffman says this almost every show, gardening is local. Sometimes he says it loco. <laughs> but he generally means local. And uh, so we'll be talking about which tomato varieties do well for us on his podcast. And we always want to throw in there, remember the climate we're talking from, try to translate that to where you're listening. Because if you're in Michigan, you probably have different parameters for what tomatoes are going to succeed for you than we do where our average summer day temperature is 93 degrees and the humidity is 10 to 15% in the mid to late afternoon uh, compared to Michigan where 93 degrees would be a major heat wave and people would be seeking cooling stations. We do that at 110. <laughs> but uh, it also has a big effect on which varieties are appropriate to your area and which gardening practice. So there are some gardening practices, this is a great segue, Lois, I didn't even think about this. There are some gardening practices that we don't recommend anywhere and others that are regionally appropriate. We had a note from Gaina. Well, now, Gaina writes and sent two pictures, thank you. Um, this could be for your show if you'd like to talk about it. I would love to know what tree this is and why people cut all the limbs back to the trunk every year. It looks <laughs> lovely until the trimming is done. Okay, so that's called pollarding. Yes. P-O-L-L-A-R-D. And uh, the one I've seen it on is fruitless mulberry. Yeah, is well, this you... fruitless mulberry? Yeah, that's a picture of fruitless mulberry, and it's a great picture. Um, and probably the most commonly pollarded or pollarded tree that you'll see is the crepe myrtle. <clears throat> it's 
people have done this for hundreds of years, actually. It's an interesting fact. I mean, it, what it looks like is someone walked up to the tree with whatever cutting tool they had, reached up and cut what they could reach. And that appears to be exactly what is done very commonly. In fact, I've seen this done where they may use a stepladder if you're lucky. Otherwise, they'll just reach up with a chainsaw, loppers, saws, or whatever, and cut off either everything that grew that year or back to a particular point. And this actually, you know, Wikipedia actually has a great article on it, which tells you about the history of it. And they do make the comment that there were two reasons that it was done. One was to provide fodder to feed livestock or for wood. So this was part of a woodlot management practice where you were harvesting the wood. Woodlots were managed. In fact, in, in England, uh, people had rights to certain areas of the forest that they could gather firewood from. They would manage that forest in a particular way, allowing certain plants to grow heading others back this way. There's two basic kinds of pruning cuts you can make on a tree, a heading cut or a thinning cut. A thinning cut is where you're cutting to an existing branch or an existing lateral so that that will continue to grow and what you've just cut will be removed. So it makes the tree look more natural. It's usually done for structural reasons to enhance the appearance and so on. A heading cut is done primarily for size control or as they say here, to harvest the wood for some purpose. Once you go down that road of doing a heading cut, you're stuck with it. You pretty much have to do that every year because what comes out from the point that you cut and it's done with certain species that happen to have a lot of growth buds that'll re-sprout really vigorously is a whole bunch more branches for next year. And uh, if you're cutting for kindling every year, okay, that's fine. But if you stop doing that, you have six branches that come out all at the point of the cut and they grow very vigorously. We call it in the business, we call it panic growth. The tree is panicked and thinks it's going to die. So it grows very vigorously in response to this, this injury. And there's nothing suppressing the growth of buds. You've removed the hormonal control over what's going to grow. Well, all of them sprout. Two, three, five, six, all sprout and all grow in the case of fruitless mulberry or London plane tree, the other tree to which this is traditionally done. Six to 10 feet of growth in a single year on each of those shoots all coming out arising from the same point. Okay. That sounds hazardous. Indeed. And it can become a risk, especially if you let it go for a couple of years from that point, because now you have all these branches next year. You may only get four or five feet of growth, but all of those branches are arising from a single point. None of them particularly well attached and none of them able particularly to make the reaction wood that would strengthen that, that attachment. So that's a tree that falls apart five to 10 years later, if you don't keep ongoing with the pollarding or pollarding as you prefer. Uh, so it's something, once, as I say, once you go down that road, you're stuck with it. The two trees that are traditionally done this way are fruitless mulberry, it's a picture of, and uh, London plane tree. We in California often call those sycamores because they're closely related to our native sycamore. London plane tree is one of the most widely planted urban trees in the world. It can take pollution, soil compaction, bad soil, you name it. So it's really popular and it's often planted. And here's another reason this is often done where there's not room for it to grow. I live under a London plane tree. We have reasonably accurately estimated its height at 70 feet and it's spread at 45 feet. And it was planted perhaps in the 1930s. It's a wonderful tree, but it's huge. It's an enormous, enormous, enormous tree. And it's got a trunk that's a five foot diameter. <clears throat> so if you put that in a sidewalk downtown or something or someplace where that massive size is for whatever reason gonna be considered problematic, people start pruning them. And if they don't do thinning cuts, if they do heading cuts, they have to keep doing heading cuts to the point that even though this started as kind of an agricultural practice, 
it has now become a design practice. I was at Longwood Gardens, one of the most beautiful botanical gardens in the East Coast. By the way, right now would be a great time to go there. They're having their chrysanthemum festival and fall color is in full swing in the mid-Atlantic states. Good time to go there. But uh, they took Paulonia tomentosa, the empress tree, which has beautiful purple flowers and enormous leaves. And big leaves seem to be a part of this. And they have them pollarded all the way down a broad avenue where you walk in at the main entrance. It's quite beautiful in a weird way. I can't, it's like when I look at Topiar, I look at it and think, why did you do this? But it is strangely attractive. <laughs> so the same reaction I have to big collections of Topiary. Wouldn't this be a lovely grove of yews if they just left them alone and let them grow? No, all right, let's look at the funny animal shapes. So this is done, to, it makes a very formal look to put it mildly. You have these classic lollipop trees and they put on as much as 10 feet of growth on each of those shoots in a single season. So you still get the shade you were after and they have big leaves. So you really get the shade you were after. But you've permanently disfigured these trees and you have to always do that. So it's, it was done for agricultural and traditional reasons, and then it became a design thing. And so you generally have to do this year after year. But they do make the comment that it was done for, you know, fodder for livestock. It, uh, they, it, now, Wikipedia says pollarding tends to make trees live longer. Hmm? maintaining them in a partially juvenile state and by reducing the weight and windage of the top part of the tree. That may be true, but all of those pruning cuts, all that scar tissue, all that constant, you know, cutting back hard opens it, in my opinion, to disease and pest problems. Mulberries and London plane trees are used in part because they're very resistant to disease and pest problems. So perhaps that's one of the reasons they've become popular for this. There is no reason to do this to crepe myrtles. I don't know how we're ever going to stop this practice, but for whatever reason, probably 30, 40 years ago, people discovered that you could get up on a six foot step ladder and cut off every part of the crepe myrtle. And look, it flushes back out and blooms beautifully. Well, yeah, they do bloom on new growth. So it doesn't hurt the tree, I guess, all that much. But it doesn't benefit the tree. And the only reason I can think of for, for doing it to a crepe myrtle is if you have chosen a variety of crepe myrtle that gets too big for the spot you're planting it. Um, you know, there are 20, 30 foot varieties of crepe myrtle, and maybe you put it where you don't want that. Why don't you just get a smaller variety in the first place? I mean, that would be a better choice. I have a confession, which is that we had a customer many years ago that we did their fruit tree pruning, and they asked us if we would also pollard their mulberry out front. It had been planted three feet from the driveway, right in front of the house. They couldn't let it get big. I lived under fruitless mulberries that were full size. They were 40 feet across. They were huge trees, and they didn't want that, but they liked the shade it provided. So I told the crew, yes, we'll do that. But you park our truck way down the street. <laughs> so the season, we, it's us doing it. we are not associated with this pruning job. We're going to do this and we're going to get out of there as fast as we can. That tree is still there and it's still being done every year, 30 years later. So you can do it for an amazingly long time. But again, once you've done that, you have to keep doing it. You see it done to other species occasionally, but typically it's the fruitless mulberry, London plane tree, and regrettably, crepe myrtles. And the thing is, people see one person do it. I, I call this chainsaw blight. Uh, we used to live in town in Dixon, and our fruit, our trees out front were fruitless mulberries. We just thinned them out. They were beautiful, really nice trees. You couldn't garden under them, but they gave us amazing shade, probably 20, 25 degrees cooler in the house because of those trees. All the rest of the trees on the street were Modesto ash. Our neighbor across the street got a chainsaw for Christmas. He went out, got up on a stepladder, and pruned everything he could reach on his Modesto ash, which essentially destroyed it at that point. However, it was contagious because from that point, over the next five years, all the Modesto ashes down the street got pruned that way. 
People saw him do it. They saw the results. That vigorous new growth looks great if you don't know what you're looking for. And so they pruned theirs. And pretty soon, all the Modesto ash on our street had been disfigured by chainsaw blight because one person had, quote, pollarded, end quote, his Modesto ash. That's many of those trees. That's not a species I would ever do that to. Many of those trees develop very bad branch angles. Branches would split out later. So again, unless you keep it up, you're kind of creating a, not just a hazard, but in the long term, a risk. But we don't recommend it. It's done traditionally to certain species. There are strange historical reasons that it's done uh, here and there. There might be a place where it's appropriate because you have the wrong tree in the wrong place. You just don't want to take it out right now. That's about it. I really don't recommend heading cuts in general for shade trees. Thinning cuts are almost always better. It's rare for us to recommend a heading cut. We'll talk more about pruning techniques as we get closer to fruit tree season, but that's a real important principle. If, if you can stand back from the pruning you've done and it doesn't look like you pruned the tree, you've done a good job. How's that? One of the 47 aphorisms of the Davis Garden Show. We need to collect those up. Somewhere, there, somewhere there's a list. <laughs> Check daily water as needed is the first one. Okay. So Don, I, I want to have a serious discussion with you now about what one can do if, for example, you buy a house and there's a tree out front and it's got this weird top cut thing happening to it. Now, in my experience, which is, of course, very limited, and in rental houses, you know, you can't do a whole lot. Right. But if you if you are in that situation, it's I've done this with my bushes. I have xylosma bushes, and we we top them all the time to keep them so that the sun would come in in the winter. Well, then when we didn't do that for a year or two, and they grew beyond that, what my experience was is I went up to that trunk. And I found the place where that knot of all the growth buds coming out had had, had come out. And, and it, it's like a big lump. Yeah, scar tissue. Lots of scar tissue. Yeah, there, lots right? of, so what we did is we cut it off just below that. And we made the cut an angled cut. Now we're talking about a stem that's at least as big around as my arm. It was yeah. a big, it wasn't little. Yeah, you're mentioning but a shrub, but an your, your, shrub, your shrub was functioning as a tree and as I lost my can. So you're, it's a big cut. Yeah. yeah. And so, so then we took away all that other stuff and we cut it at an angle and then went out there every couple of weeks or so. And the bud that came from the top the highest point on that cut we left alone mm -hmm. and all the others we just took a little thumb and and, and rubbed them off yep. so that we ended up with only one stem coming out of that of that place and it worked it we does were and able you just to recover that that bush yeah you can restore a plant from having been pollarded you can uh, a, a certified licensed arborist is going to be your best bet for a tree obviously but what you did you saved yourself a lot of trouble as those flush out the five or six buds come out you can rub them off with your thumb or break them off with the you know when they're only a couple inches tall and it's okay to leave a couple if they're well positioned with respect to each other bearing in mind the highest growing bud on a tree suppresses the growth of the buds directly below it and to some degree suppresses the growth of buds even further down on the tree and when you take botany you learn about apical dominance and apical control and that's basically the hormonal basis on, by which the tree 
controls its shape. A weeping willow versus a Christmas tree is all hormonally controlled based on the, the highest bud. You have to monitor then. And yes, a tree can be undone from pollarding. You can have a tree service come in, let's say three times over five to seven years and choose those branches and make sure they appear to be well attached and monitor for any injury or rot that might've gotten in through that constant stubbing of that one area. And it can be grown out into a normal tree. Again, oftentimes these are cases where the tree species that's been chosen is too big for the spot in one way or another. So it might be worth just getting a bid for the pruning and a second bid for the removal. And you'll probably find they're pretty darn close because it doesn't cost the tree service that much more one way or another. So you may decide, okay, bite the bullet and take it out and put in a more suited suitable tree for the spot. But a lot of people don't have the time to wait for the tree to grow or the inclination to take out a tree, in which case you can either keep pollarding it forever or have a, a tree service that you know and trust come back for multiple visits over a period of time to gradually retrain it. You can even do that yourself with crepe myrtles. Uh, you know, you let them flush out that first year and then you thin them out by half. And then you watch how those branches develop and you strategically remove some of them. I've looked at pictures with people of trees, the silhouette in the winter picture, you know, emailed to me and then printed out. And I've taken this with people right at my desk and, and taken a Sharpie and shown which ones I would cut out. I'm like, oh, I see what you're doing. You're opening it up a little bit. Yeah, that's the idea. Looking for branches that are well positioned. It doesn't require a high level of horticultural skill for a crepe myrtle. For a London plane tree or a fruitless mulberry, you should definitely have a certified licensed arborist to do that retraining for you. In the long run, your best bet, of course, is to put in a tree that's the right size for the spot. Keeps coming back to the key principle, another aphorism, right tree, right place. <laughs> well done. You know, it is October 25th. Well, it's the end of October. That means, hey, Halloween's coming up on Tuesday. It's and not it's gonna not rain. Gonna... It's not gonna rain. <laughs> <laughs> we already got our rain for late October. I gotta mention, Lois and I were chatting about this before we started recording. This has been a really typical fall. Uh, there have been ups and downs, you know, higher temperatures and lower temperatures. That's also fairly normal. We almost always get one rainstorm before Halloween. Well, we did. It just didn't happen on Halloween, as most young parents will recall. So I wanted to look at the October calendar. We went through some of it earlier in the in the month, and I, we've probably gone for most of the things that are opportunities or harvest. But here's my question to you, Don. Mm -hmm. What's in your kitchen right now that you've harvested in the last week or what do you plan to harvest in the next week? In my kitchen right now are the very first pecans, which I pulled out of their hulls so that I could get them before the ground squirrels do. Walnuts are all over the ground, and I have four different varieties of walnuts that I'll be picking up more of today. So nuts are coming down, and of course, if you live in this area, you'll see them sweeping up the walnuts uh, for the last harvest on those. What's really in my kitchen right now is actually kind of funny. I went out to start taking out my tomato plants or continue taking out my tomato plants. I harvest the last ones that are good. I pull the cage, I cut them and I, and I move on. And I walked up to the Juliet hybrid, which is the, um, it's a sauce tomato. If, I mean, it's a very meaty tomato. It's elongated. It looks like a miniature Roma or a, or a, a plumper San Marzano. I grow it almost every year because it's very reliable in production. I looked at it and I thought there's at least 400 
perfectly good fruit on this plant perfectly good fruit all the other tomatoes i'm going up to some are fine some are spoiling you know it's that time of year you're taking the last ones that are still good and you're pulling out the plant so i thought okay i'm gonna go get a giant bowl and i'm gonna pick as many of these as i can to fill the bowl and i'm gonna count as i go 130 tomatoes later (laughs) i was done harvesting i had filled the bowl so i had no more space there's still probably 100 plus out there Juliet tomato was the champion producer this year by far over the course of the whole season I would estimate probably 600 fruit it also flowered and and set very heavily in mid August and again in early September so those are what I'm harvesting right now a small number of them have split the rest are just fine if you're only going to grow one tomato I often jokingly call Juliet our empty nesters tomato a guy come in years ago and said, I used to do the whole thing, you know, plant 10 or 15 plants. We'd can them and freeze them and all. Well, the kids are all gone, but I can't imagine having a garden without a tomato plant. Plus, the wife and I like to travel. Uh, so we like to go away for a few weeks at a time. So, well, then plant Juliet. It'll be fine. You'll come back. There'll be plenty hanging on there. End of the season, you can literally shake them off the vine. They, they tug very gently. The calyxes, the green sepals at the base of the fruit, detach just with your thumb. Just blip, they're gone. Uh, you can cook them whole. You can freeze them whole. And if you freeze them whole on cookie sheets and then store them in bags, you can take them out, hold them in your hand, run it under cold water, and the skin will just peel right off before you use mm-hmm. the now peeled fruit their seed count is pretty low they're a meaty one that's a lot like a you know classic sauce tomato so i'm turning these all into salsa i got two crock pots full and enough for two more and that'll be it for the tomato season but to answer your question what's on my counter right now (laughs) a lot of jalapeno peppers and a whole lot of juliet tomatoes so if you're looking for just one i keep coming back to this one you look at the picture and you think oh it's just like a cherry tomato or something no it's it's got a lot of uses anyway once again Does the the Juliet make enough tomatoes, set enough tomatoes and and enough different times that you had green tomatoes out there or was it, were they all right? Oh, there's still green tomatoes on there. I'm wondering what's going to happen to them. So I'm thinking maybe this will be, I usually leave one or two tomato plants right on into the freezing weather. I've watched the songbirds really like that, for example. And I'm also curious which ones will hang out until, you know, December. Uh, champion. Well, if you've got any extra green tomatoes, I'm always happy. Is that right? <laughs> I love green tomatoes. Interesting. You know? yeah, that's because that's you and come from Michigan. Summer, <laughs> when, when they're ripening, it, it feels wrong to... Right. Take a green tomato because it could eventually get red. But hey, green tomatoes are great. So that's what's out there on the on the counter right now. And of course, lots of people are harvesting well kumquats and lemons and things like that. But uh, this is the big end of the season push. And also persimmons are beginning to ripen. The Fuyu persimmons are just coloring up, but not really harvested yet. Pomegranates. Many people are harvesting their pomegranates now. Seems a little early, but a tart pomegranate is something people expect. So that's fine. Um, What else is on my list there? I just changed to prickly pear. That's on my list. Prickly pears are ripe now. Uh, quince is something that would be harvesting in uh, November. Actually, I'm looking at the November list. Some people are picking apples and uh, feijoas came and went. That was pretty quick. Um, and then, of course, people are beginning to harvest from their greens, their leafy greens and the kale and things like that. Things they planted. We got a good chance to do some early planting in September and people are already harvesting the kale uh, and lettuces and things like that. Also, the key question we keep getting, when is it too late to plant cool season vegetables? There's always some cool season vegetables you can plant, but there's some things which we think it's too late for. As we've mentioned before, large-headed broccoli, large-headed cauliflower, cabbage, don't really have time to develop the plant that'll sustain that. 
but the asper brock, the broccoli rob, the uh, the sprouting types of broccoli, kale, of course, leafy greens like lettuces and spinach, Swiss chard. Can you can continue planting right on through the winter? Last year, we did have the experience of lots of rain and lots of overcast and days after day after day without real really any amount of sunshine starting in December and running all the way into March. And so a lot of those cool season vegetables struggled and a lot of people didn't have great results with their winter gardens last year. The ones that did come through fine were the greens like lettuces. They were okay. It was the coal crops that hadn't gotten in in time and then just didn't have enough sunshine, frankly, to develop well. But the sprouting types like asper brock did great. So if you like the effect of broccoli and you do stir fry, things like that, look for those. And we still sell them at our garden center all the way into December. And again, in late January and February, because they have a very long season. There's still stuff you can plant. There's still time for seeds of things like radishes, beets. You could do carrots. They'll take up quite a while to germinate, but they're fine. And so there's still plenty of things you can plant in your vegetable garden. And if you're not having a winter garden, if mm -hmm. you if you are like so many people in the summer, it's fun to go out and work in the yard and it's warm, it's wonderful. And, and come winter, you, it's cold and wet and rainy. And I think I'm going to go to Hawaii. It's dark when so, you get home. That's, that's yeah. the biggest thing. You know, you have no sunlight. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. if you are, if you have a smaller winter garden than a summer garden or no winter garden for some of us, uh, what do you recommend planting as a cover crop to keep down the weeds? It, it depends actually on the main purpose. If you're trying to build nitrogen, one of the best things to plant is fava beans. And you can plant them anytime from now. I've done them as late as mid-January with very good results. They can go even into soggy soil and freezing conditions. They're a big plant. They're robust. They're kind of a tough stem. So at the end of their season, you end up just cutting them down and letting the roots disintegrate. You're not going to till them in or try to turn them in or anything like that. If the main problem, I have one area of my vegetable garden that got very weedy because it's way down at the end and I hadn't really developed it. I'm going to be seeding in oats down there, oats mixed with peas. There's a great combination that we sell on our seed pack. It's uh, regular field oats and regular field peas, Magnus peas. You can eat them, but they're starchy. They're not primarily being grown for peas, but they fix nitrogen. They scramble up onto the oats. The oats last year got four or five feet tall because of all the rain. Birds loved them. It was a wildlife habitat like you wouldn't believe. And this is a traditional cover crop combination going back hundreds of years, oats and peas. Beans and barley are the other two in the in the nursery rhyme, right? Oats, peas, beans, and barley grow. So oats and peas make a great winter combination here. You can seed them anytime now into actually as early as as late as early December. They'll grow rapidly, especially when we get some rain. And they'll shade out every weed you could imagine. They will definitely choke them out. And the thing I like about this in particular is that I can then take a weed eater at the beginning of, let's say, oh, mid-March, first of April, just go along, cut it down so it all just falls flat let it sit there for three four five six weeks before planting summer vegetables pull them aside be sure to mark where your drip lines are pull them aside plant along the emitters and they shade the soil no summer weeds come through so they actually are one of the most effective for weed suppression if your yard is smaller and you can't really imagine a field of weed of oats and, and peas annual ryegrass it doesn't fix nitrogen it just aggressive roots rapidly grows shades out many many weeds it gets about 18 inches tall mow it down as it starts to come into bloom and you're ready to go for your summer planting so grasses are more aggressive roots and are better at shading out the winter weeds that you're otherwise going to be dealing with but they don't fix nitrogen so for for building the soil for vegetables fava beans 
uh, clover to some degree, things like that. And those field peas going in with the cover crop can be very good. Well, my thought was, what about just piling up all these leaves that have fallen down and just pile them up there? I mean, that would yes. that would be a good cover, wouldn't it? Yes, the the house that I lived in that had the two fruitless mulberries, which were not pollarded, <laughs> they were pruned properly. They were big, beautiful trees. They're still there. Uh, we got a mountain of leaves out of those in a little normal residential subdivision. And so I would, and, and the city of Dixon didn't have leaf pickup or anything like that. They uh, this It was on you if you wanted to haul them to the dump. So we would rake them up, put them on a tarp, haul the tarp to the back, pile them on the vegetable garden. We would have a winter vegetable garden, but it's never as much space as your summer vegetable garden. Winter vegetables are discreet little plants, a head of lettuce, a thing of broccoli. It's not a scrambling uh, pumpkin that runs 20 feet across the yard. So we'd have one end where there'd be vegetables and the rest I would just heap up whatever quantity of leaves we had. And that would be as much as two feet deep. And if we got anything close to normal rainfall, they would begin disintegrating right away. If you pull them back and look at them in the winter, you'd find worms and things down there underneath them because they're protected. You would find it disintegrating to the point that by spring planting for the summer vegetables, there's just basically a, a layer of residue on the top and it had all disintegrated and worked its way into the soil. It turns out that doing that in undisturbed areas, such as under shrubs or nearby beds where you already have flowering perennials and things like that, is a, one of the key elements of the life cycle of the leatherwing beetle or soldier beetle, mm. which is a prolific aphid eater. It's that shiny or elongated beetle with a black head and an orange other way around, orange head and a black body. And uh, you'll see them showing up around your porch light, typically mid-March, early April, eating, and they'll be out there eating aphids. And an important part of their life cycle is that interface of moist, decaying leaves on soil. And they have a long larval stage, many, many months. And so you have to have a place where you can just put those leaves under your hedge under your xylosma, whatever, you know, just rake them over there, pile them as deep as you want. It won't hurt the shrubs if they have leaves piled around their base. Dirt, we don't want to do, but leaves are fine. And if you're watering even normal irrigation or even very low irrigation, but right at the base of the plant, as with a drip system, you're creating an excellent habitat for one of the most important beneficial insects that uh, takes care of aphids for us in the spring and summer. So you're creating, uh, you're, you're, you're getting dual purpose. You're building the soil and you're making a habitat for beneficial insects insects. That needs to be undisturbed, but on your vegetable garden, it, they'll just become compost and they'll just work their way in. So there's no reason in general. I have this conversation with people over and over to take leaves from your property and send them away. We really wish you wouldn't do that. The city wishes you wouldn't do that. I do know, I've got to say, there are some people, downtown Davis, for example, massive London plane trees over their neighborhood or Modesto ash or whatever, little tiny yards. They can't imagine, you know, they, they said I'd have to put it like six feet deep <laughs> with leaves in the back of the yard. Okay, you've got a reason to send them out to have the city pick them up. And they do go to a composting process and you can then go get that compost from the city later. So it's not going away and being, you know, put into a landfill, but it would be, simplest best for your soil if your leaves went back into your soil if you can possibly do that so we are going to call that composting in place yes it's all i, I mean, do it may not be the exact place you may rake it off your driveway you mm -hmm. know but it's on your property but what about if you wanted to actually do some formal composting mm -hmm. and Composting in place, you just pile it where you want it. Formal composting, you have to do a bunch of stuff to it, and then you move the final product to where you want it. 
Right. You okay. can get you can get very serious about that if you want to. I find composting simplest to do like we just described, pile up stuff. If you've got weeds and things that are annual weeds, not Bermuda grass or others, go ahead and throw them in there. It's important to have some soil in there. You layer the soil and the leaf matter and the lawn clippings and so on. You generally don't want to be putting household scraps in there unless they're just vegetables. You don't want to put any um, meat type scraps or dairy type stuff in there, not just because of the, well, they attract things that you don't want coming to your compost pile. Um, if you do it the way I'm talking about, you just pile everything up in the fall and the winter and you put your last layer on of whatever in mid to late winter and you just make sure it stays moist with rainfall or you start watering it in the spring if the rains stop early and then that stuff is typically available to you that summer. People who are really serious about composting will generally have three places, one with incoming, one that's functioning, and one where you're screening out the compost to put it out in your garden. And they'll often have a compost thermometer, excellent Christmas present, and that'll be poked into the compost pile to make sure it's getting up to 140, 50, 160 degrees in there and really getting a high enough temperature to kill pathogens, kill weed seeds, and, and hasten the decomposition. Many of them will have an actual bin or, or a structure where they put the stuff as it comes in. They turn it by hand, which is great exercise, and then they move that to the next bin and so on that works very well and it makes an amazing product i will say the one thing i strongly suggest other than making sure you're layering materials correctly and getting enough soil in there to keep this all actively going you probably would do well to add a source of nitrogen during the process and that makes the compost richer for your vegetable garden later my father would routinely do was see when manure is on sale at his favorite hardware store he'd buy a couple extra bags take it out and just dump them onto the next layer of the compost pile and then whatever would go on top of that. That gets some manure, some nitrogen in there because compost itself, this is really important, doesn't provide much in the way of nutrients. It improves the soil in a bunch of other ways, including bringing worms in, which can help provide some nitrogen, but it itself typically is a very slow release source of very rather low levels of nitrogen. So when people tell me, I didn't get great results with my vegetable garden, I used lots of compost, I have to ask, did you buy compost or did you make compost? Because purchased compost nowadays usually has some kind of fertilizer or manure added. So you'll see results from it. If you made your own, it doesn't. So you need to supplement that somehow. Uh, it's not the only thing you'll put in your vegetable garden, I guess is what I'm coming around to on that. But you can make wonderful compost just right on the spot where that tomato plant's gonna go next April. So you can just pile it up there and a little manure is fine if you happen to have some or do that at the time of planting. And you'll be amazed how quickly even large leathery leaves like those from sycamore and plane trees and mulberries break down when we have anything close to normal rainfall. I wanna mention, um, I was taking my car in for smog tests and the guy goes, oh yeah, I listen to your show every Thursday. Hi folks at Easy Smogger, appreciate having you in the gardening audience. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter here at KDRTLP 95.7 in Davis, California.